there's an agreement across the network that this transaction is valid and every honest guy knows that this is valid. Mm-hmm. And this is what's called in a very high level term, this is what's called BFT. So Byzantine Fault Tolerant Protocol. And the idea is basically simply as, as just voting mechanism. So you vote for things and then you make sure that you know that all the honest nodes have voted the same as you. All right, so awesome. Welcome to the show, Amrit. Amrit Kumar is the chief scientific officer and president of Zilliqa. Are you president of the foundation or is there a, is there a company there? President of the company, Zilliqa okay. Private Limited, yeah. So welcome to the show. And this is going to be a one-on-one series. First, want to clarify that this is not compensated in any way. You guys didn't give us anything to be on the show other than your time. <laughs> so, and we appreciate it. So... We're just going to go through the 101 series and we're going to learn all about this project. Before we do, though, I want to learn about you. I want to learn about the history behind the project before it even launched. And uh, so tell us about yourself and then tell us how the project came to be. Sure. Well, hello, everyone. My name is Amit Kumar. Um, we started back in, I would say, you know, 2017, I would say, you know, mid-2017. So we, we were a group of, the whole company was started by a group of, I would say, seven people mostly from academia. Uh, some of the people were entrepreneurs as well. And we were all coming from our had associations with uh, what's called National University of Singapore, which is a research institution in, in Singapore, one of the best ones. And we all had a background in security, privacy, distributed systems, and those sort of things. And one of the common person who kind of united us together was this person named Pratik Saxena, who is a faculty member at, at uh, the National University of Singapore. I was a postdoc under him, so I have a background in computer security and privacy. I did a PhD uh, at uh, INRIA, which is a research institution uh, in computer science in France. And then I moved over to Singapore, where I was doing a postdoc, uh, you know, research that you do for one year, two years, to gain more experience in research. And this is where I met Pratik Saxena, who was my advisor, and my other colleagues, which then grouped together to form Azilica as, as a company. Are you familiar with Lux Research, just in the just randomly mentioning because they're research firms yeah any my my uncle used to be part of one it was based in singapore at some point so thought there was thought there was a chance anyway okay so you're you're doing all kinds of awesome academic and research projects how did how did this pop up in on your radar how did you decide i want to look at blockchain i want to look at this space were you already in bitcoin 10 years ago or so uh, the whole thing started when i was uh, finishing my phd which was end, end 2016 and this is when I was looking at, you know, okay, what, what to do next? Now that I have your PhD, I should do something next, you know, after this. And I was looking at the space on the research space and trying to understand what researchers are working on, what are the hot topics, uh, per se, mm-hmm. uh, in, the research, in the research domain. And uh, Bitcoin and blockchains were kind of picking up, you know. As you know, Bitcoin and blockchains were generally very driven by developers. But around that time, you know, academics were also involved in the space. They were trying to see, okay, what are the research areas? What are the research topics and problems that can be solved in this space? And I was kind of looking at that as well and saying, okay, what, what, what can we do in this, in, this, in this blockchain space? I was still very new. I didn't even understand how Bitcoin worked back then. And so I was looking at people who were, who were working on, on blockchains in general. And I found Pratik Saxena, who was based in Singapore, who was working on, on blockchains, especially on scalability. And so he had published a few papers around how to scale blockchains, particularly using an idea called sharding that we can discuss later. 
And this is how I contacted Pratik and said, you know, do you have any project around blockchains that, you know, you have where I could work? And he said, oh, blockchains are, you know, coming, you know, there are not so many difficult problems to solve anymore, but you are definitely welcome to try it out. So uh, this is how I, I came over to Singapore. And the first project in the research project that I, that I worked on was to understand the privacy aspects of Monero. So Monero, oh, okay. back, so Monero back then, it was, it was end 2016, early 2017. Um, this was a time when Monero, so they were Dash back then, uh, Zcash was, was coming up and Monero was becoming very popular in the, you know, in the darknet for obvious privacy reasons. And uh, the protocol was very simple and it was being believed that I mean, it's, it's very private in practice. But, um, you know, the research project that I was working on was the, pro- the objective of the project was to understand whether Monero indeed is private in practice or not. So theory may look nice. In theory, on paper, everything looks nice. But does it actually work in practice in terms of privacy? So we started working on this project with, with, my, with my advisor, Pratik. And uh, we worked on, the, on this project for around three months. And uh, we published an academic paper and to prove that the transactions that ever happened on Monero for the last three years until February 2016, were not private at all. So uh, people, oh. could, yeah, they were not private at all. People could actually know who is sending transactions, and and you know try to trace people in some way. So that was that was my entry to blockchain in some, in, in, in a way. So uh, the first paper I read was Monero, and then I went to understand how Bitcoin works. And this is when, when I had finished my project on Monero, I was looking at, okay, now what's the next project that I should work on? And this is when Pratik, you know, once gave me a call and said, uh, you know, we had published, so he had published a paper on scalability, uh, you know, how to scale blockchains uh, with some of his, uh, you know, PhD students. Uh, one of them is actually now a CEO, the CEO of Kyber Network. So he was working with some of these students and he published a paper on how to scale blockchains. And he said, look, we have this academic paper, but we would like to, you know, build a production system based on this, this academic research. Uh, would you be interested in joining this project? And I said, yeah, sure. So this is how I got involved into, into that project. And then that project eventually became Zilliqa. Okay, that's awesome. So I didn't realize that, that Monero, I, when I think of Monero, I think of something that's done privacy right. And that may be because it's a little bit different now, with the way that they've done. I know they're using a, a different with Mimblewimble. I don't know if that changed anything. Would you say that they fixed any of the problems that you were finding, or is it still that way? Okay, to be very honest, I've, let me say the some of the observations that we made uh, in, in terms of some of the attacks that we felt uh, could could work uh, on mm-hmm. Monero were kind of actually known, theoretically speaking. So, so the Monero team, research team, they knew that these are possible attacks, uh, but they were not aware of uh, how effective those attacks can be in practice. And our paper was able to show that you could actually trace around 90, over 95% of all transactions that ever happened on Monero in the first three years of its existence. So this was, oh, wow. this was kind, of, kind of new for, for those people as well. Obviously, um, you know, they, were, they, they knew that this problem existed in some sense, and they were pushing out some, some features, for instance, hiding uh, what's, what's called the ring confidential transactions, where the idea was to hide the amount as well. And before you know, February 2017, the amount was not hidden. So you could know how much money you were transacting. Oh, okay. And that also created a lot of traceability issues as well. But after that, uh, I think things have more, certainly improved over time. And uh, I, have, you know, I have not followed Monero uh, since, since I finished the project. But I'm sure that some of the changes that uh, the team, Monero team has made over time must have, must have had an impact on the privacy that Monero provides right now. Okay. So I'm glad you were able to even like explain that a little bit more. We've had, we had I can't remember who was on the show, but he, he said uh, 
Monero's not private, but didn't really give an explanation. And I'm like, well, come on, you can't say something like that and not mention why. I mean, very, very simply speaking, Monero, I mean, in the initial version was, let's say you want to sign, you want to send your transaction, okay? And let's say it's like a mixer, basically, Bitcoin mixer. Yes. And the idea is, let's say if there are five people who want to spend one Monero, then they can somehow sign one single transaction. And then I could say that, look, my transaction is one of the transactions that is in that group. So I don't say which address is mine, but I would say this is one of those addresses. And the problem in this approach is that you are hiding behind a crowd. And what if the crowd basically says, look, this is not me, this is not me, then you are, you know, you are unmasked. And mm. that was the kind of problem that Monero was facing back then. That's interesting. I, I, I feel like I, now running this stuff in my head, I realize I need to get uh, one of our, we have a couple friends of the show that are Monero developers. Now I want to talk to them, get them back on the show and be like, all right, what did you guys change? So, but this isn't a Monero podcast. This is Zillica podcast. Okay. So we're going to talk. We got all the way up to basically the inception of Zillica. Right. Did it did it have an ICO or did you guys uh, do it some other way when it launched? No, we, we did a TGE. So uh, that was that happened in December 2017. So the end of, you could say, ICO era to some yeah. extent. And we raised, uh, the initial idea was to have a hard cap of $20 million uh, mm-hmm. in, in fiat. And what happened uh, in, during that time was Ethereum, so we were, we were you know, raising Ether, basically. Mm. And what happened back then was Ether, Ether price went shot up uh, really high. I think it was around, just around 500 or 900, even, I think, dollars. It got above 1,000 at one point. Yeah, I, yeah, yeah. I, those exactly. were the days. Exactly, at that point of time. <laughs> and because of that, what happened was, there was a, obviously, there was a pre-sale uh, you know, cap that we had intentionally had in mind that we will do 50% in pre-sale, so roughly speaking, 15 a million dollars or 12, you know, 12 to 15 million dollars in pre-sale and then the remaining half would be a community round where people who are in our Slack channel, Telegram and Twitter, they could participate as well. So unfortunately, what ended up happening was, you know, because of the Ether price uh, shooting up, uh, you know, we we hit the mark, the hard target that we had, which was 20, 20 million dollars. And obviously, that was kind of a sad situation because we had been building this community and growing this community for a long time. And just at the last moment, things just changed drastically. So what we decided was we definitely didn't want to blow the entire thing and make it $50 million or $100 million. Uh, so what we did was we, we increased that cap by just $2 million just to accommodate the people who were there in the community back then. So everyone had a chance to contribute two, from two up to five Ether, if I remember correctly, a very small amount of Ether that they, that they could contribute. But I felt that this was kind of a fair way to, 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 to deal with the situation that we were in. So yeah, in total, we raised around $22 million back then. Okay, so that's a reasonable-sized ICO. I mean, you you hear things like uh, EOS raised a billion dollars and then you know did did uh, great things with it. Uh, maybe not, but then and uh, it's it, do you need that much money to to start a blockchain? I, I've been rooting against EOS, but at the same time rooting for them because it's so much money that they raised that I didn't want them to fail. Uh, so I guess I mean I guess technically I haven't failed not not my cup of tea. But anyway, so you you guys have gotten this ICO fund, and we're going to talk about all the specifics of what Zilliqa is. But this is just this is the important piece of the history. Sure. How did you handle kind of what happened when the market crashed? Did you immediately kind of convert into some form of fiat or a stablecoin? Or yeah, so um, we we had this we had the strategy of you know we we definitely understood that you know this market is is very mature and it can change uh, drastically at any any point of time. So we had our own measures uh, in terms of treasury management, and we are we were completely safe with uh, with the funding that we got. So we don't have any issues right now um, with with the funding at all. Cool. All right. So 
that's pretty good for the history. And the next thing I'm going to do is I'm just going to we we call it the rapid fire section where we say we just ask the quick questions and we explain them later, just so we can give the listeners an idea of what they're about to learn the rest of the show. And it's just just five. They're pretty easy. But uh, the first one it would be is the Zillica project a coin token platform or is it something else entirely? I would say platform. Okay, so it's a new platform. Does it work off proof of work, proof of stake, or something else? It's a mix of proof of work and what's called a PBFT, a a consensus mechanism that's very classical in nature. Okay, cool. So we'll get into exactly how that works a little bit later. Is the mainnet live and everything, or is it still a token? Yes, mainnet is live, and we have moved around 90% of tokens to to our main network now. Okay, and would you consider it a fully decentralized project, or are there uh, points of centralization? Um, so we have a network of around 2,400 nodes, which I feel it's, it's decently centralized compared to many existing platforms that are out there. All right. And this is my favorite question. Do you think the name sounds cool? <laughs> I, have, I have heard a lot of, lot of uh, complaints around Zilliqa. They feel that it's hard to pronounce, at least. Uh, hard to remember. Many people call it Siliqua, which which bothers me a lot. So I, I would say oh, that... There's no you. <laughs> but yeah, I don't know. Some people say that, and, and that, that bothers me a little. But yeah, I would say that if I were given a chance, I'd probably try to change something to, to something that's that's probably different. What's the meaning behind the name? Is there a... So, so the idea was was to combine, you know, we wanted to hit, uh, you know, zillion transactions or those sort of things. And then uh, uh, we wanted to have a combination with silica, you know, the, the, the material that you use for chips and hardware and computers. So it was supposed to be um, the silica for, you know, decentralized applications. And, and that's why Zilliqa came into existence. Interesting. I love hearing the, the thoughts behind, like, branding and stuff because that's, uh, that's something nobody's going to notice right off the bat. But I, I recognize the name of the project when um, I, th- I think it was, I can't remember, who, if Melissa maybe that reached out to us. I was like, oh, Zilliqa, I know that project. We turn away almost everybody that emails us to come on the show. And I was like, you know what? I, that's one I want to learn about. I knew I liked it. I knew it had like a kind of a brand name behind it. So I was like, we're going with that. So there was brand recognition there. I will say, even Thank if you. Thank you. you don't like the name a hundred percent, I think that's kind of cool now that I know the reasons behind it. Okay. So that was, that was the quick version. Now we'll get into kind of the, the nitty gritty and how this works. So the features and structures is the main piece behind all of the blockchain projects. So we've said Zilliqa is a combination between proof of, uh, or, well, it's a unique combination. So let me have you explain how that consensus mechanism works for Zilliqa. And then, you know, we'll, yeah. I'll try to interrupt you if there's something I don't understand. Sure, sure. So um, the basic protocol is in which that allows you to reach consensus and validate transactions. So imagine you send a transaction to the network and the network has to agree upon whether the transaction is valid or not. So it's not trying to double spend. And, and so you need a consensus protocol. Uh, in Bitcoin Ethereum, you use something like proof of work where you know those a bunch of transactions are, are packed in a in a block, and then someone does a, 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 a you know does some com- computational work to prove that the block is valid. What we do is more of a voting protocol. So what you have is a group of people who check the transactions, who check the blocks, and they say, okay, I think that this this block looks good to me. So here's my vote, and everyone votes for it. And what happens is then after that, there's another round of voting to to make sure that I know that all the honest people in the network have voted yes for it, okay? So that there's there's an agreement. There's an agreement across the network that this transaction is valid and every honest guy knows that this is valid. Mm -hmm. And this is what's called, in a very high-level term, this is what's called BFT, so Byzantine Fault Tolerant Protocol. 
And the idea is basically simply as, as just voting mechanism. So you vote for things and then you make sure that you know that all the honest nodes have voted the same as you. And this mechanism generally works under the assumptions that you have a super majority of nodes which are honest. So uh, as long as one third of those net nodes which are there in that group who are running consensus are malicious, everything will work fine. And, and, and that's the basic idea for this PBFT, practical Byzantine fault dollars. Now, the problem behind this is how would you actually make that group of people, right? How do you make sure that, okay, now how do you form that group of people? That's, that's the biggest question. And, and this is where what's called a civil resistance come into, comes into picture. So let's say if I bring you, if I allow your computer to become a, to become a member of that group and if I allow you to, to vote, then it's possible that you would vote one million times and you can screw the entire, entire voting system. Right, right. And and so the idea is, how do you ensure that one network node, so one machine can only vote, roughly speaking, one time only? And this is where you need some civil resistance mechanism, a mechanism where you cannot pretend to have multiple faces. And this is where we use proof of work. So what happens okay. is, if you want to join the network, you have to do a proof of work. And basically, proof of work becomes an entry ticket for you to join that group of consensus nodes. And once you are in that group, you will do this PBFT for every block. So uh, the difference between Bitcoin, Ethereum, and Zilliqa would be that in Bitcoin, you would do a proof of work for every block that you mine. In Zilliqa, you would do it every hour or so when you want to reconfigure that group of people. And after okay. that, for every block, you will do the basic PBFT, which is a voting protocol, basically. So the main nodes of the network are kind of, they're picked in, I don't want to say a random way, but a, a similar way to Bitcoin, where you don't know who's going to get that exactly. block reward whoever it, there's going to be how many people like 10 a thousand nodes 100 nodes uh that get picked to kind of mine the blocks for an hour is that the way it works that's right so you have so right now the network size is capped to 2400 which basically means that you can create smaller groups what we call shards we can get to it later we call shards which is smaller group of 600 so you have four shards each containing 600 and if you want to get in one of those shards you have to do a proof of work and there's also random assignment which means that if, let's say, all the miners in the world they start to attack one single shot, then it's doomed, right? So the okay. idea is you have to somehow randomize this. And the randomization basically comes from proof of work because you know that proof of work, it's all about luck and make sure that you, know, you, you hit the right nodes and so on. That has an inherent randomness into it. And this is, where, this is what we exploit to make sure that one shot doesn't get um, you know, dominated by malicious nodes alone. Okay, so they're mining the proof of work. They get assigned to different shards based on when they complete it. That's right. And then for that period of time, they are giving a vote, yes or no, exactly. that these transactions are valid. That's right. Do they also do some sort of on-chain governance for any of the uh, code upgrades or anything like that? No. The, there's, uh, unfortunately for, for us, we had uh, we were th you know, thinking about how to do, whether to attack governance or not. But back then, this problem of sharding was, was very new. No one was trying to solve it anyway. And, and Ethereum was trying to solve it, by the way. But it was, it was a problem that was kind of unknown and solution was kind of unknown. And then we also started to work on this new smart contract language that we call Scylla. And we felt that we just had too much on our plate to, 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 to code and implement. So we didn't implement any uh, governance back then. Now that we have a version, we, we can start to think about you know, how to bring in governance in, in some form. But at this point of time, we are not looking at, at it right away. Okay, so Zilliqa is using their own smart contract language, basically. This That's isn't... Fine. This isn't like a Haskell or a no, or no. What, what's Ethereum? They're uh... Solidity. Yes, Solidity. Yes, there. I was brain farting on that. So, how does the Zilliqa 
code work differently compared to those? So, uh, okay, the, the reason why we wanted to do and design a new smart contract language was because we felt we were seeing incidents like DAO and parity happen. We had seen incidents where uh, this batch overflow happened where someone was able to create ERC-20 tokens out of thin air. Uh, in DAO, someone was able to steal around $60 million worth of Ether from, mm-hmm. from a contract, and you had Ethereum and Ethereum Classic. And after that, we had parity incident happen where you know a substantial amount of money, I think it was around $300 million worth of Ether was stuck in a contract. So we felt that uh, some of these incidents were motivating enough and challenging enough to understand how to fix them. You can't just wait for the next bug and vulnerability to be found. You have to do something about it. And our observation was that there's a trade-off between how flexible you want your language, how much expressive you want your language to be, and how much you want your language to be tractable in some sense. By tractability means, I mean, how much you want your contract to be easy to reason about. So given a contract, okay. can you say that this contract is, go- is going to do what it's expected to do, and it's not going to misbehave? And uh, so there's a very, very trade-off, you know, very, very clear trade-off that more, the more flexibility, the more expressive the language is, the more difficult it is to reason about its correctness. And, and this is where we decided to de- design a new smart contract language we'll have, which will have some restrictions on, on the sort of primitives or so the sort of constructs that you can, you can use. And the benefit that you will get is, one, you would be able to reason very formally. You could have actually a mathematical proof that could say that, okay, my contract will have these properties. So if, let's say, if your contract is holding $5 million, then you could have a property that says that this contract will not leak this fund to any other contract or any other user. And you could formulate that property and you could have a mathematical proof that could prove that that property is indeed valid for that contract. So this is something that's very hard to do, if not impossible, in other languages. In authority, it's doable, but it's very complicated. Uh, and, And the way... If you construct, you know, if you put some restrictions the way we have done in Scylla, uh, some of those uh, things become much easier to handle uh, just at the language level. Okay, so you've put restrictions on what can happen. So it's not a, whereas Ethereum is trying to be a virtual machine and be basically a computer, uh, there are things that I could do if I, I'm not a developer, so this is hard, but there are things that I could do if I was writing a code on my computer that just wouldn't translate to to this platform. Uh, one good example of the difference is around loops. So imagine, let's say, you want to write an infinite loop. So you want to do something you know, infinitely many times, right? Mm. And this is something that is possible in EVM. So you can literally write a, an infinite loop in a solitary contract. That cannot happen in Scylla. You cannot write an infinite loop in Scylla. Now the question is, do you need an infinite loop in Scylla? That's the biggest question. And the answer mm. is no, you don't. Because... If, let's say, if you write an infinite loop in a solidity contract, and if you put that contract on, on Ethereum's uh, blockchain, then that contract will never run. And the reason is because every block has a gas limit. And for every loop that you run, you're going to increase the gas limit, you know, the gas, gas consumed. At some point, a part time is going to cross the gas limit and you're going to stop. So um, even if you write a, a for loop, it's never going to run on uh, Ethereum's blockchain anyway. So uh, we felt that if you just remove that restriction, if you say that, okay, you can write, you can iterate over things, but you so you can say, okay, I have five things and I can do, I want to do something, I want to apply something on those five objects. That is possible. So iteration is possible, but infinite loop is not possible. And this is what Scylla uh, doesn't provide you. And yet it, it doesn't mean that you can't write certain applications. So you can write all sorts of applications that you actually see in practice on Ethereum and write it and, and in Scylla in, in, in as well, and it will complete work just as expected. 
Okay, great. Is that how the uh, parody situation was able to occur? Did they do some sort of uh, of infinite loop to brick those accounts? No. So, so parody. So this is something where this Scylla also comes into into you know Scylla's design principles also comes into picture. So in, the problem with parity was that in Ethereum smart contract, there's a notion of pure contract, which means that the contracts that maintain state, and by state means it could be the balance of each uh, token holder, for instance. So let's say in an ERC20 contract, you will have a balance map. That says that oh, Amrit is going to uh, hold five, it has five tokens, Charlie has 10 tokens, and so on. Okay, and that's called the state. So, certain contracts have a state, and certain contracts do not have a state. And those are called library contracts or simply libraries. And what libraries do are basically they allow you to do mathematical operations. They do not handle state, but they just allow you to do, for instance, additions, multiplications, compute, uh, you know, I don't know, fancy mathematical functions that you can have but they don't handle maps. They don't handle state. In, in parity, the problem was that this notion was very blurred. And this is, this is at a very high level, this is what, what created the problem uh, in the first place. That developers did, had, didn't have a good distinction between what should be considered as a library and what should be handled as a pure state contract, a contract with the state. What Scylla does to, to, to make this distinction clear is that you have a contract. So you have a pure notion of a contract and you have a pure notion of a library contract. So in a library contract, you simply cannot have a state. In, 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 in Solidity, there, there's no distinction like that. So you can actually say that it's a Solidity library contract, but it can still contain a state. And there's something okay. that Scylla that doesn't allow you to do. So, and this distinction makes, uh, you know, developers become very aware of what they're writing because they know that, okay, I'm writing a library code this will not contain at any cost any con- any state and therefore it is going to be safe and then you can have a separate contract that's going to handle actual state and this distinction was not very clear in parity and that's 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 that was the biggest reason why it didn't happen ah okay okay so that makes sense so just a little bit of a little bit of a wire cross on the code yeah. that if you put a restriction on it then the the developer can't make that mistake exactly. whereas exactly. you know a great developer may never have made the mistake but People do make mistakes because exactly. they're human. So, they... so the, idea, the idea is to kind of put certain logical restrictions, not too heavy restrictions, but logical restrictions that, that, guides the, that guide the developer to think in a certain way and to make sure that they, they know what they're writing. And this is something that because of the language flexibility that Solidity provides, it's, it's just hard to, to make sure that your developer who is writing a contract, it, it's following the right path. It's, it's very hard. All right, so we've got the Zilliqa platform. I'm, I'm saying Solidity and Zilliqa, and they sound very similar. Uh, we've got the Zilliqa platform. Now, we've got the Zilliqa platform with certain restrictions that help developers create more robust code to create the decentralized applications on the network. Does it have the equivalent of an ERC-20 token, or could I make the crypto basic coin on the Zilliqa network if I wanted to? You can do Anything that you, are, you, you, you can imagine doing on Ethereum and replicate that on Zilliqa. We already have a token standard that we call ZRC2, which is the ERC20, you know, you can, you can say the variant, uh, no, an implementation okay. of ERC20 in Scylla. So yeah, you definitely can, can write any token contract. You definitely can write any application that you see right now on Ethereum and, and trans, you know, tr- you know, write, translate that into, into Scylla. So we can make tokens on this network now. If I wanted to transact with these, 
is just the Zillica the gas essentially, or is there a separate token that'll function no, as the gas? No, holder? so there's just one token, just like in Ethereum, you have Ether and you use Ether to pay gas. In Zillica, you have Zill and you use that to pay gas. Okay, perfect. So circling back around to the to the miners, or well, we're calling them miners. I don't know if that's the right. Yeah, term, that, that's the miners that are that do do they get some sort of block reward for doing what they're doing? I suspect they do. Yes, yes, they do. Um, so every time a block is mined, uh, the miner gets a reward, certain percentage of the reward. This is kind of different from, I mean, the model is slightly different from what you see in in purely proof of work chains, where you have one miner who proposes a block and he gets all the rewards reward that, mm-hmm. that is that is there in that block. In Zilliqa, because you're doing voting, you can't just say, okay, I, he is the biggest contributor. It just doesn't make much sense to talk in that terms. So you have to somehow share that reward among all people who have contributed in that voting process. So in, in a way, it makes things slightly more, um, the variance is slightly low. So in, in Bitcoin Ethereum, if, if let's say if you're a miner, if you get a reward right now, the next time that you will probably get a reward is probably going to be, I don't know, one month time, two months on, so on, you know, probably even longer. Of course, people do, you know, join mining pools and so on to reduce that variance. Right. But the general idea is that miner doesn't get rewarded every single time for every single block. And and in Zilliqa, when you join a network and if you're able to participate in that in that voting process, then you will get a portion of that reward. Not all, but a fraction of that reward. And And as long as you are there for long enough, you will get enough reward to cover your operating costs. Okay, so does Zilliqa reward miners proportionally like bitcoin would or is it kind of like as long as you have the base requirements then you will have an equal chance uh, uh, among all the others or does it yes yeah, so or, or would it be per coin or no no so it's like if you if you are if you're able to do proof of work and if you're able to join the network and if let's say if you are supposed to sign twice and if you're signed sign twice then you'll get the best the fixed reward if you for whatever reasons missed or you were late or you know all sorts of network reasons if you miss signing the second time then you will only get reward for the first first signature so okay. this, this is how, how the other the other good benefit of zilliqa you know mining is that you can do parallel mining so zilliqa's doesn't require you to do proof of work for every block what this this basically means that you can go and mine ethereum and then come back and say okay now this is the time to mine zilliqa and do that zilliqa mining for a minute or two and then go back and use your hardware or gpus to to mine whatever chain that you want to mine and then so so you can do parallel mining in some sense as well which is which basically means that zilliqa mining is kind of free for you in some sense uh, in terms of hardware interesting so yeah i could i could just dedicate some small amount of the overall yeah. computing power that i need to help secure that network along the way so i i don't know if that's standard among any other coins but that seems kind of revolutionary in the sense that like you're not trying to replace the ethereum or you're not trying to replace bitcoin trying to function in that overall ecosystem along with them. And this is exactly why we, you know, people were asking, you know, why, you know, there was, there was a lot of discussion going on whether people should go with ETHash or, or you know, the, the new proof of work. And uh, we felt that you need, you need to boost, bootstrap your mining network anyway. And the best way to bootstrap your network is by using a mining algorithm that's, you know, popular uh, among miners. And ETHash is obviously, you know, was popular among miners. It's still popular among the miners. And that's why we are using we are using Ethash for proof of work, and and hence are compatible with those who are mining Ethereum. Okay, great. So this all sounds like it, it makes it pretty likely that Zilliqa could do a lot of transactions per second. I could be wrong on that, but you talked about a paper on scalability, so I suspect 
that we're going to have some large number for what kind of processes can go through. Yeah, so we we did an experiment a few months ago uh, with a network of 2,400 nodes. Let me make sure that this number is something that you understand uh, because most of the chains other than, let's say, the top two or three ones like Bitcoin, Ethereum, other than those chains, most of the other platforms are running very small number of nodes, uh, maximum of 100 maybe. Uh, in many cases, it's it's 20, 15 or those sort of numbers. So Not we, to name any names, but we talked about them at the beginning of the episode. <laughs> So yeah, we uh, we our network is pretty large in in that in that sense. Two thousand four hundred nodes. It's 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 a pretty large network, decently large network. And the throughput that we observed from that decentralized size of network was two thousand eight four hundred transactions per second. Uh, just to give perspective, Bitcoin and Ethereum right now they process around five to ten transactions per second on average. Hmm. So there's there's a huge gap between what they process and what uh, Zilliqa can process without sacrificing too much on decentralization and security and, and scalability okay so yeah that's a pretty decent amount of transactions so one of the things that we talk we we talk about all the time is how at some point it doesn't matter how many transactions you do once you do a certain amount unless you're trying to run literally a a, an exchange where you're gonna where no chain seems to have anywhere near the amount of money that they or amount of transactions available to run a real exchange it'd be impossible so otherwise most of these coins when we're hitting thousands we're really in the spot where we could run a financial network if needed. I, I completely agree. I mean, there are there are people claiming that they can process 1 million transactions. But honestly, if 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 you have a network that is decentralized enough, that's pretty hard, if not impossible, to achieve. And this is, this is where any decentralized network will have a limitation. You you simply cannot go beyond a certain... I don't know what that, that limit would be. There's certainly going to be a cap on where that network will plateau at some level. So by the way, Zilliqa's sharding is, is kind of linear as well. So the more groups you have, the more throughput you can get. And that's kind of leaning the number of shots. But still, at some point of time, it will become difficult uh, in terms of bandwidth and communications-wise. So um, at some point of time, you will have to you have to rely on layer two solutions for sure. That's, that's something that you can't afford. So is there are there plans to go wider on the 2,400 nodes? Is that just a cap for now? And then as the network gets bigger and bigger, you'll have 4,800 or more than that? Yes. Yeah, so at this point of time, you feel that 2,400 uh, net, you know, size network is, and, and the throughput that we get from that uh, network is sufficient enough for handle, to handle you know, the traffic that we're receiving. Uh, but uh, it's, it's, it's very easy for us to, uh, to extend that to, 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 you know, to, to increase the network size to slightly higher and probably add one more shard if needed. Uh, and we, 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 you know, we are flexible about that and we'll, we can add it you know, when we see that there's a demand for for that throughput uh, at any point of time. Okay, cool. So we've got our platform. We've got the ability to create token generation on there if we want to. We can mine two things at once and still contribute to the network. Is there any limitations that you would think on where this would go? Like you could say, you know, oh, it's never going to be as fast as Nano or whatever. Like, is there a, what's the biggest trade-off that you would think of when you think of Zoka? I would say the trade-off are twofold. One is, like it or not, and people may many of us and even i may hate or like bitcoin and so on but there's a beauty to bitcoin there's a beauty to the simplicity of the protocol that bitcoin implements and sadly we are moving away from simplicity and not just us everyone in the space is moving away from that simplicity protocols are becoming more and more complex and that adds to security issues that adds to how would you make sure that the protocol that you have you know designed or the protocol that you have implemented doesn't have bugs or doesn't have issues or doesn't have loopholes so that's 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 something that I think Zilliqa certainly faces, which is the protocol is complex, and 
many protocols even even look at right now when i try to follow ethereum's uh, you know model that's not as straightforward either it, mm. it's, it's become for many chains right now you know you can call it blockchains version 2.0 they all have a very complex architecture and this is sadly maybe probably the only way out but we are losing that that simplicity that bitcoin provided so that's that certainly creates all sorts of can create all sorts of issues for many chains who are who are developing right now the second problem that particular to zilliqa i feel is around the language and, and adoption right you know the fact of the matter is you know developers in general are in some way lazy in some sense right they, <laughs> they, they they tend not to pick up good things quickly but you know i've seen arguments and this is this is where i think that silla can has a has a has a you know learning curve for developers certainly so people have to learn the language and that can add a little bit of you know barrier for them and this is where there are certain things that we have to do and we are trying to do as well one is that you have to develop templates that people can plug use and plug and play and most contracts if you we recently did a research on on the kind of transactions that you see on the network on on, on ethereum still a lot many of transactions and a substantial percentage of transactions are still erc20 sort of transactions you know and only a very small fraction is is something that's non trivial or something out of the line Right. So uh, there are still a lot of template contracts that are out there that people will eventually use as long as we make sure that those template contracts are ready and can be used by people in an easy manner that 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 be that would help developers to get get things started. The other problem that I feel is a limitation I would say is around tooling. So the good thing about Solidity has been that it has been there for a few years now and a lot of developers have or the ecosystem in general has spent time and resources to develop tool chains and toolkits so that developers have a good time um you know have 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 a way to easily deploy contracts and play around with it mm. unfortunately in our case since the language is new we have to develop all those toolkits one after the other ourselves we cannot piggyback on existing tools so this is something that we are working on right now now that our you know our protocol version version 1.0 is out uh we have a dedicated team working on improving you know tool chains and toolkits that developers would you know generally it's not that we don't have it but we feel that generally the blockchain space is 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 not as good as traditional ecosystem in terms of toolkits and tool chains i think zilliqa needs to be put put a little bit more of effort in improving improving on that front right so so you're kind of so what you're saying is your developers uh well not even your develop, everything the zilliqa company behind it their resources as a trade-off are going to have to be spread between both upkeeping the Zilliqa protocol and the code and also building the tools that the developers need to actually work with with the the Scylla and all that. Yeah, exactly. This is this is why we have we are you know we are working with the community and and this is where we can harness their power, right? Because the fact is, you know, no matter how you know we we are not a 1 billion or or 50,000 uh member team we are, we are still a you know a decently small team and so we have to somehow make sure that the community gets involved into some of those building process right up until now community has contributed a lot so they have developed at least five different sdks that people can use to interact with the with the zilka blockchain and we have sdks uh, in javascript go python uh, c sharp uh, ruby and all sorts of languages that you can imagine and this is where this is where we are kind of in, you know working together with the community to help get some of those things up and running as well 
So, um, and it's it's not that you know people are not built. You know, pe- people don't have tools. You know, we already have a few applications running on on Zelka blockchain, and they have used and they are using the the you know the toolkits that we have. But I, I do feel that there's a room for improvement for sure. So I'm wondering from a developer standpoint, if that's almost a pro sometimes, like if when you're competing for contracts on things or you're trying to make you're trying to make a living by by producing this stuff, maybe the barrier to entry is good, similar to, you know, if you're an entrepreneur and it's harder to get into your business, you might be more profitable in that case. Yeah, sometimes it is. If you look at I me, mean, you know, many people ask me, why, why would you design a new smart contract language? What's the what's the point of it? And and it, it will not work. Uh, people will not use it. I mean, look at how many languages exist in the traditional space. You have C, Java, Python, C++, OCaml, Haskell, and more than 100 languages out there. And people are actually using many of those. A single programmer like myself, I write code in at least four or five languages myself. Mm-hmm. So it's not that people, and given that Solidity is, is the only language, I just don't believe that in the next few years, it's still going to be the only language. It's, it's just impossible. Uh, in the same way, C or Ada or... or Pascal and all the, all those things were not the only language out there. You know, languages evolve. Every language offers a new feature that uh, some developers like and some developers use. For instance, Scylla is is very inspired from functional programming languages like like OCaml, and uh, this is also a good way for us to attract people who are in that space, so who are working on uh, you know functional programming languages. And if you look at re- re- you know recently. You had this JavaScript, right? And then you have people start to build a type-safe version of JavaScript that they call TypeScript. Now there's another version that they're trying to build that's called ReasonML, so uh, which is which is even more closer to OCaml. So it still remains JavaScript-like language, but yet uh, is is very close to, to to OCaml, and that's being being developed and maintained by big companies like Facebook and Bloomberg. And so so the fact of the matter is, this the, the smart contract space is still very new. And there's a there's a lot to 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 offer to the developers who are out there, especially especially from security perspective. It's if you are to deploy a contract that's going to handle hundred million dollars dollars worth of worth of money or assets, then it's probably better to make sure that the the contract that you're writing your code in is is is, is a safe language. So it's it's something that is is also I would say attractive for people in certain domains. For instance, fintech space. People who are handling insurance, people who are handling large amount of money, they would like to go with a contract language that's much safer to to to, to reason about. Yeah, so the risk of the failure could outweigh their reasoning behind not wanting to switch a language. That's right. So that yeah, that that makes sense. And at any point, if we stop innovating, I think uh, we've made mistakes. So exactly. when, when people tell you don't make a new language because it's not going to work, they're just almost wrong by default exactly. because if we if we did that we wouldn't have computers in the first place exactly. we'd have uh, a giant machine that alan turing created that yeah. does not that doesn't do much i mean look look at look, at look at ethereum itself right uh, you had solidity i mean even before solidity you had lll and you had a bunch of other other low-level languages that came up serpent was another language that came up before solidity solidity and then you had solidity so ethereum itself solidity is not the only language that was developed by ethereum in the first place and even after Solidity came into existence, uh, Ethereum started to work on this language called Viper, which is a non-Turing complete language. So they themselves realized that you know Solidity, while it offers you a lot of flexibility, it's it's there are there are better languages that that can probably do a better job. 
And Viper is one example of, of an effort that the Ethereum Foundation is, and you know the Ethereum community in general has 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 been putting efforts in. So to bring it all back, so we've we've covered basically everything that I think we can about this coin. If we've missed anything, definitely hit me with that. Or I call it coin. That's bad. Project is right. <laughs> is the right way to say that. If you were picking your competitors, yes. like we've talked about Ethereum a lot, is there anybody else that's kind of like writing your space neck and neck with you? Um, I'd say if if I if I compare uh, projects who are doing things which are similar or or, or you know more close to us, I would say projects like uh, Tezos or Cosmos. Yeah, Tezos or or Cardano from mm-hmm. two angles. If you look at uh, both of both of these projects, they are also developing their own smart contract language. For for Tezos, it's it's Mikkelsen, and then now you have higher level languages built on top of Mikkelsen. And in case of Cardano, it's it's Ada. Uh, I don't know. Unfortunately, it's not live yet, but uh, we, we do both these languages and even Scylla. They are kind of following the same design principle, which is going through uh, you know design a language that's restricts users in some ways but gives much more makes it much easier to you know talk about and and, and talk about the correctness and safety of your contracts so in, in in some way we are kind of trying to innovate in in some you know in, in the same direction in some sense so i would say that in terms of competition i mean i i won't really call it competition because i feel that this open source space is is more about collaboration rather than competition because we have learned a lot from many other chains out there and many of the chains are, I'm sure, are, are learning from us and, and the way what we are doing things. You know, when we started uh, back in June, we were the only one who was doing sharding. And now you have a lot of projects who are following uh, the, the ideas that we had started with. So I think it's it's a collaborative space and we should not be maximal about things. And, and we should try to learn from every, everyone else who's out there. Because just because you have an idea, it's not that I cannot take your ideas and make it a better one. It's, it always happens. And this is how, how the world moves forward especially in the open source space. I love that answer. That's uh, the, the idea that it's not competition, that everybody's collaborating together. That really is, a, that sums up how I kind of feel about the space too. I, I I don't like the, you know, you might go post on Reddit about a coin and everybody goes off on you because <laughs> the, you know, they hate it or whatever. It, it's different if it's a, if, if you end up with a scam or, or somebody doing an exit or going bankrupt or whatever the case is. But it, it's not the same when, everyone working together and everyone having that principle together is good. Yeah. I don't like to see things like uh, like a Tron that doesn't seem to have that principle. They're more about stealing <laughs> rather than innovating. I mean, I will give you a quick example of, of a, you know, a project that we were doing. We have a researcher at Zilliqa who is working on you know, how to improve and optimize certain parts of the Zilliqa protocol. And we wanted to understand the user behavior, how what sort of transactions people send to the network. Oh, and then... Depending on on the you know user pattern, you could try to optimize some of those things. And so we what we did was we basically looked at the Ethereum blockchain and you know downloaded the entire data and tried to analyze what can what can we learn from that data. And we we got some interesting interesting insights from that from that data set. And when and then we decided that okay we we can try to try to build a solution that can or leverage on the insight that we got from the Ethereum chain. And it's, that's the beauty of open source collaboration. You know, you you learn from other people and then improve your own work, and, and that's that's the way we should do. Well, we are. I, I just said we, like I'm some part of it. You you collaboratively as the the developers, the people behind these projects are paving a way for for a better a better future for all the rest of us. And there's no shame in. I mean, this is why I, I mean, if if you are if you are taking ideas from from a project, 
be open about it and say that look this is something that we 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 got inspired from this chain and 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 you know give give them the right credit and that's all that's all they, that matters Yes. So what you're saying is don't copy paste it and then pretend like you didn't use yeah, another project. Yeah, you, do you don't do that. I mean, if you're copying, tell them that you're, it's, it's coming from that. I mean, if you look at many of these, I mean, one classical example is uh, some of these EIPs and BIPs, you know, the Bitcoin improvement proposals and, you know, Ethereum improvement proposals. We also have Zilliqa improvement proposals. And one of the basic thing that all of these projects have in these, this BIPs, EIPs and EIPs have in common is this ZIP version, ZIP zero which is a file that explains the purpose of the ZIPs, what's, what, what, what's the guideline, how, how to write a ZIP, how to write an EIP. And if you look, right, look at those, that ZIP, they are all the same. And, <laughs> and there's a section just at the bottom that acknowledges that, okay, this is something that has been copied from BIP, and BIP was copied from a Python thing, a Python thing was copied from so on. And it's just about admitting that you're, you're copying it, and, and, and it's, it's completely fine. You're learning from what other people have done and building on top of that. Yep, got to have some integrity in this space. <laughs> it's it's not always there, and I love I love seeing it when it is. So I think that wraps up. The, I I understand what's going on with Zilliqa. I think the listeners are probably going to understand if they wanted to get their feet wet and and start to learn a little bit more, rather than like go to their local exchange and buy Zilliqa. Is there a great onboarding portal? Is your website the best place or? Where, what would you do if you wanted to so, learn more? Uh, so website is, is one good place where, and we have blog posts as well that explains Zilliqa in, in, you know, at different depths. So we obviously have a white paper that can, you know, be, it can be a bit technical, but we have broken down into different uh, blog posts as well, which are easy to digest. Uh, me, myself, and many of our core team members are always involved in the community on a regular basis. So if you have any questions, doubts, or questions, feel free to join our Discord or Telegram channel. Uh, we are always around if you have any questions or doubts or if you like if you'd like to learn more from us. Awesome. So I think that'll I think that'll wrap us up. Thank you so much for your time. Thank Thanks you for joining the show. Thanks for explaining everything about this project. And uh we look forward to an update in the future when you come back and you tell us how all, all of these plans worked out as you uh as you shoot up the uh, the market cap charts sure. because we all know that's the primary goal not <laughs> yeah, thank, <laughs> no. yeah thank you very much yeah we are definitely looking forward to it and uh, thank you very much to your listeners all right we'll see you on the next episode oh wait we're not financial advisors of course i we didn't really talk about anything we made fun of price we but anyway just in case you're wondering we're not and this is for entertainment so please uh do your own research